This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Nehemiah. Now, with this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 3. And as you make your way to the third chapter of Nehemiah, we just want to take a moment to remind you that Nehemiah was the man that the Lord raised up to go and lead the nation of Israel into a time of political revival. The Israelites had already experienced some level of religious revival under the leadership of Ezra, and now Nehemiah is being used to bring this time of political revival. And, and while it's true that Nehemiah was a Jew who was born in Babylon during the days of their captivity, well, it's also true that this was also the man who was ready to risk everything. He was ready to risk his position, and he was ready to, to, to risk everything so that he could go and help his kinsmen uh, to secure the borders there in Jerusalem. I'll remind you, uh, it was actually in our study last week when we learned about the day when Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, and after inspecting the walls and the gates of the city, Nehemiah went on and encouraged the leaders there of Israel. He, he encouraged them by helping them to realize that it was time for them to rise up and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah assured them that the hand of the Lord was upon him, which is to say that the, the Lord was the one leading him uh, in, into this uh, venture. And not only that, but the king of Persia was also providing him with political support as they all set out to accomplish this construction project. And in response to uh, this, uh, this, uh, this encouragement from Nehemiah, and that's when the leaders of Israel agreed they to, to rise up and rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. And it's here in our text tonight where we find them joining together in order to accomplish this good work. Now, as we make our way through the text before us tonight, I just want to take a moment to address the progressive position of those who insist that borders are somehow immoral. Uh, we've heard that on a few occasions, that border walls are immoral. Listen, if border walls are immoral, then that would make God an immoral being. Because God is the one here who's sending Nehemiah to go build the border walls of Jerusalem. The Lord was the one who raised up Nehemiah and then sent him to Jerusalem so that he could help the people of Israel to rebuild the defensive walls of Jerusalem. And with that being the case, I believe that Christians would do well to reject this fallacious argument of these progressive politicians who would have us to believe that border walls are somehow immoral. At the same time, well, it's also important for us to remember that the ancient walls of Jerusalem included 10 gates. And so while defensive walls are not immoral, it's also good to have gates by which you can access uh, the other side. And, and so while it's true that the Lord sent Nehemiah to rebuild the border walls of Jerusalem for the sake of their security, it's also true that he sent Nehemiah to go and restore the gates of the city so that those who wanted to come in and worship the Lord could actually safely enter the city. Well, with this as our focus... We're going to spend our time tonight considering the construction of these 10 gates as well as the entire border wall. And so if you would look with me here at Nehemiah chapter 3, I want to begin reading there at verse 1 because here we learn that Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the tower of the hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the tower of Hananel. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachur, the son of Imri built. Now here in the beginning of this chapter, 
we find the high priest Eliashib showing his support of Nehemiah's leadership. And he did this by leading all of the priests there in Jerusalem to start this construction project. And they began by rebuilding the Sheep Gate. Just to be clear, the Sheep Gate was located in the northeastern quarter uh, uh, or corner of the city. And, and as you might have guessed, the Sheep Gate was so named because this was the gate where the sheep came in. Yeah, it's, it's kind of self-explanatory there. I, you know, they didn't really spend much time on the naming of, of this gate. I'm, I'm guessing that someone had just said, let's call it the Sheep Gate. And another person said, nah, that's, that's bad. And, uh, but, but, but they did it anyway. <laughs> so what are you going to do? But this was the, the, the gate where the sacrificial sheep were brought into the temple. And this, is, you know, uh, this was so that they could offer the substitutionary sacrifices for the sins of the people. So this was a very important gate. And it's no wonder that the priests of Israel spent their time rebuilding this specific gate. That the, the priests not only constructed this gate, but they also consecrated the sheep gate as they prepared this point of entry for all the sacrificial animals, which I'll remind you, were actually symbols and shadows of our Savior. Remember, all the sacrificial sheep that were led through the sheep gate there in, there in Jerusalem, they were all symbolic placeholders that were pointing to the substitutionary sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus. And it's for this reason that John the Baptist introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah, all the sheep that, that were led through the sheep gate and then sacrificed there at the temple, they were pointing to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who was sent to die for our sins. Jesus is the sacrificial Lamb who was slain for our sins so that sinners can then enter the gates of the New Jerusalem. You might not know this, but yeah, the New Jerusalem is a gated community. It's got a huge border wall all the way around it. And so once again, those who insist that border walls are immoral, well, that would make, you know, God's design for the new Jerusalem uh, an immoral atrocity. Uh, That's a ridiculous argument. The new Jerusalem that, that the Lord is preparing for us has a great and high border wall. And listen, it's not all access. There are 12 gates with 12 angels at those gates, and the only people who will be allowed to enter those gates are those whose sins have been forgiven by faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is God's perfect plan for the new Jerusalem. Now, with all this in mind, I want to turn our attention back to the 10 gates that we find here in our text tonight. If you would, let's pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 3. Look with me there, beginning at verse 3. Here we learn that the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Koz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, the son of Meshezebel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, made repairs. Next to them, the Tohakites made repairs. But their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. Now here in these verses we learn about the the reconstruction of the fish gate and its surrounding walls. And with this as the focus, you might like to know that this second gate uh, was also located on the north side of Jerusalem. And while the sheep gate was on the east side of the northern wall, the fish gate was actually on the western side of the same wall. 
The fish gate was so named because of the nearby fish market where fishermen from Tyre or fishermen from the Sea of Galilee, they would enter Jerusalem through this gate and and they would bring the catch of the day to sell there in the fish markets. And seeing how Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they were all fishermen, I'm going to guess that they were probably familiar with this gate, which was later named the Damascus Gate. But as we consider this fish gate, I can't help but to remember what Jesus said to the, the Galilean fishermen who became his disciples. It's in Matthew chapter 4. There he declares, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. From this we see that the Lord Jesus was calling his disciples to become fishers of men. And I would argue that he's calling every Christian to become fishers of people. And and in, in other words, we've been called to lead people into the kingdom of God by presenting them with the gospel of grace. And by the gospel of grace, people are able to enter into the fish gate, if you will. We're spiritually leading people as we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ through the fish gate so that they can enter into the kingdom of God. The third gate that we find here in our text tonight is the old gate. And with this as the focus, I want to pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 3. Let's begin reading there at verse 6. Here we learn that Jehoiada, the son of Passiah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, Jadon, the Maranathite, uh, the men of Gibeon and Mitzpah repaired the residence of the governor of the region beyond the river. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Herahiah, uh, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Also next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made uh, repairs as they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, leader of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumaph, uh, made repairs in front of his house. And next to him, Hattush, uh, the son of Hashabaniah, made repairs. Now, now here in these verses, we learn about all the men who were helping to repair the old gate and its surrounding walls. And you might be interested to know here that the old gate was located in the northern section of the western wall. Now, there are some who believe that this gate was called the old gate because this is where they made all the old people go through. Uh, maybe there was like some sort of a wheelchair ramp or something. We don't know. But, uh, uh, but actually, the origi- this may have been the original gate which was used to, en- uh, to enter the ancient city of Salem. And so maybe that's why it's called the old gate. Others insist that the old gate was actually the gate where the elders of Jerusalem would meet. And it was there where they possibly discussed matters of civil importance uh, or, or made judicial judgments over court cases. And if, if that's the case, then the old gate was a place where the inhabitants of Jerusalem would go and seek the sage wisdom from the elders of Israel, you know, who had acquired more life experience. And with this in mind, you know, I can't help but to think of something that uh, Paul said in Titus chapter 2. It's there where he actually encourages older Christian women to provide godly guidance for the younger gals in the Christian church. And not only that, but in Titus 2, again, he encourages the older Christian men to provide godly guidance for the younger guys. And with that being the case, you know, I always encourage every Christian to spend time at the old gate, if you will. We ought to spend time at the old gate seeking out mature mentors who can provide us with godly guidance and, and according to Paul, in a very gender-specific way. 
Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the gals who are seeking out older men to counsel them, well, why? You know, what, what does an older guy know about, you know, the kind of discipleship that a young gal needs? Or, or a, a, you know, a, a younger guy who's looking for, you know, a, a mother-type figure to give him counsel about what it means to be a godly man. How, how's she going to do that? You know, younger guys need to be looking for counsel from older guys, and younger gals need to be looking for counsel from, from older gals because that's God's design for all of this. And I get it, there's a whole bunch of gender confusion going on in the world today, but let's just look past it and realize that God made men and women and has a very specific design for them, and we would do well to spend time at the old gate looking for mature Christian mentors to provide us with godly guidance according to our specific gender. Uh, and, and listen, one, one great place to start, men, is by showing up to the men's ministry. Uh, and one great place to start, ladies, is by showing up to the, to the women's ministry and, and spending time with other gals who uh, are, are seeking the Lord together. We have to be looking for this kind of godly guidance from more mature believers and within the context of our gender. That's what we find there in Titus chapter 2. And as we continue to consider the construction project that we find here in Nehemiah chapter 3, well, we find ourselves moving on down to the valley gates. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study beginning at verse 11. Here we learn that Malchijah, the son of Haram, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section as well as the tower of the ovens. And next to him was Shalom, the son of Halohesh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. He and his daughter made repairs. Hanun, the inhabitants of Zanoah, repaired the valley gate. They built it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate. Now, here, here in these verses, we learn about how, uh, the Israelites who were helping to repair the valley gate as well as, as its surrounding walls. And I'll remind you that it was uh, the western gate. Uh, it was uh, there in that western gate that Nehemiah uh, actually accessed the valley gate as he sent, uh, set out to inspect uh, the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. That's what we learned last week. He, he, he went through the valley gate as he went out on this uh, inspection tour. And in order to understand why this gate is called the valley gate, uh, I, I should uh, take a moment to remind you uh, that uh, Jerusalem was actually located atop Mount Moriah. And not only that, but the city was also re- surrounded by three valleys, This included the Kidron Valley to the east, the Hinnom Valley to the south, and then there was the uh, Tyropoian Valley, uh, which goes right through the center. And seeing how these three valleys were connected there to the southern side of the city, it's no wonder that they called this gate the Valley Gate, because this gate would actually uh, grant you access to this this, uh, centralized point where the three valleys connected. Now, with this in mind, it's important to realize that there are times when the people of God find themselves going down into the valley. We love the hilltop experience, right? We love being up on the hilltop. We love being there, you know, in the temple, you know, worshiping the Lord and just enjoying his presence. But there are times where we find ourselves being led down into the valley. And, and that's maybe where you find yourself tonight, in a dark, deep valley. And, and, and listen, if that's the case, I'll remind you that the Lord oftentimes leads us into the valley, It's actually in the 23rd Psalm where King David reminds us that there are times when our good shepherd will lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. And yet, even when we find ourselves there in the valley, uh, there's no reason for us to fear. And the reason why is because our good shepherd is right there with us. 
As a matter of fact, just think about it like this. If we look at a satellite view of the way that these three valleys connect, what we discover is that all three valleys together look like the Hebrew letter Shin. That's very interesting. The, the, all three valleys together form the, the, the shape of the, the Hebrew letter Shin, and the letter Shin was oftentimes used as a symbol for one of God's names, and specifically El Shaddai. This speaks of God's almightiness, and, and therefore the valley gate, which would lead a person down into this branching valley system, well, it, it's there in that valley where you might experience the almighty power of El Shaddai. And I, and I love to think about it like that. That, that so there's, there's an experience with God uh, that, that we can only have in the valley. And, and while we all love the mountaintop experience with God, there are times where we really learn how to depend on God in the valley of the shadow of death. And it's there in the valley where we know that our almighty God is with us. Now, as we make our way from, uh, from gate to gate, the next gate on the list here is the refuse gate. And with this as the focus, if you would look with me there at Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 14, here we learn that Melchijah, the son of Rechab, leader of the district of Beth-Hakarim, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Now, here in this verse, we find those who spent their time rebuilding uh, the refuse gate. And as you might have guessed already, uh, this gate was used for getting rid of the city's rubbish and refuse. That's right. This gate was used to gain access to the Hinnom Valley where the refuse would be then dumped and burned. And as we consider this gate, we must not fail to grasp the spiritual significance of a refuse gate. You know, if if there was no refuse gate, so to speak, then all the refuse in Jerusalem would just continue to pile up. You know, all, all, the, all the rubbish would just continue to pile up. And, and so you need this gate to get rid of the garbage. And in, in a similar yet spiritual sort of way, listen, those who come to faith in Jesus Christ are still, we're still struggling with all sorts of rubbish. You know, we, we acquired all kinds of rubbish, you know, in our days before Christ. And then we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we're still holding on to a whole lot of rubbish. And, and, and it's rubbish that we need to get rid of. I like the way that Paul summed it up in Colossians chapter 3. There he declares, Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Now, to sum this up simply, uh, listen, the, the Lord has a plan to sanctify us. He has a plan to cleanse us as he helps us to become more and more like Jesus. And with this as the goal, listen, every believer has been called to then walk in obedience by using the refuse gate. There's some things that we should just refuse. Uh, you know, there's just some things that we need to get rid of from our lives so that we can become more and more like Jesus. There are, there are sinful desires that we must learn to deny so that our lives can be sanctified in, in the name of Jesus Christ. At the same time, it's also important to understand, uh, 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 understand the importance of, of the fountain gate, which is the next gate on the list. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 3. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 15. Here we learn that Shalom, the son of Kol Hosen, leader of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired the wall of the pool of Shelah. 
by the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, leader of half the district of Beth Zur, made repairs as far as the place in front of the tombs of David to the man-made pool and as far as the house of the mighty. Now here in these verses, we learn about the Israelites who were repairing the fountain gate as well as the wall that stretched past the pool of Shelah and as far as the man-made pool, which was by the house of the mighty. This sixth gate was actually located right around the corner from the rubbish gate on the southeastern side of the city wall. And it was called the fountain gate because it provided access to the pool of Shelah, which was fed by the constantly flowing fountain of the Gihon Spring. Uh, Now, seeing how this pool was the only permanent water source for the city of Jerusalem, the fountain gate was oftentimes used by those who came to collect the, the water that they needed for daily living. We also learned that the pool of Shelah was next to the king's garden, and so I imagine that they were channeling water from the Gion Springs uh, and into this garden so that the plants uh, uh, in the king's garden would always have enough water to produce good fruit for the king. As we consider how the fountain gate then provided the people uh, with access to the water that they needed there in Jerusalem, uh, I can't help but to remember what Jesus said in John chapter 7. It's there where he declares this. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, the Lord Jesus is the one who provides us with the living water of the Holy Spirit. And this is not only a refreshment for the believer, but as the, the living water of the Holy Spirit flows over from our lives, then we become a refreshment to others. And not only that, but this living water of the Holy Spirit then also enables us to begin producing the spiritual fruits of the Spirit, which include love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And these are the fruits that we ought to be bearing for the glory of our King Jesus. Now this brings us to the seventh gate, which is called the water gate. And, and, and listen, this has nothing to do with Nixon, as some might speculate. But with this as the focus, I want you to look with me here at Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 17. Uh, here we read, after him, the Levites under Rehum, the son of Bani, made repairs. Next to him, Hashabiah, leader of the district of uh, Keilah, made repairs for his district. After him, their brethren under Bavai, the son of Henadad, leader of the other half of the district of Kelah, made repairs. And next to him, Ezer, the son of Yeshua, the leader of Mitzvah, repaired another section in front of the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, carefully repaired the other section from the buttress of the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Koz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. And after him, the priests, the men of the plain made repairs. After him, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs opposite their house. And after Azariah, the son of Masiah, the son of Ananiah made repairs by his house. After him, Benui, the son of Henadad repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress, even as far as the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai made repairs opposite the buttress and on the tower, which projects from the king's upper house that was by the court of the prison. 
After him, Padaiah, the son of Parosh, made repairs. Moreover, the Nethanim, who dwelt in Opal, uh, made repairs as far as the place in front of the water gate toward the east and on the projecting tower. Now, here in these verses, we learned about all these workers who uh, repaired the water gate as well as all the surrounding wall in this region. Uh, and, and, and much like the fountain gate, which provided the people with access to the pool of Shelah, the water gate here actually provided the priests with access to the flowing water from the Gihon Springs. And, and seeing how the water gate was part of the palace temple complex, this was actually the place where the priests would then access the water that they needed for their consecrative cleansing ceremonies. And so this gate, this water gate was very important to the priests, which is why you find some priests here working on this gate as well. Uh, but with all this in mind, I, I'm, in, I'm reminded of the encouragement that Paul presented in Ephesians chapter 5. It's there where we learn that the Lord Jesus has a plan to sanctify and cleanse the church, uh, not with just H2O, but, with, but with, with the washing of the water by the word. The, the Lord Jesus has a plan to sanctify his bride, the church, by washing us with the water of his word. And so much like the priests who, who would go there to the water gate to you know, gather the water that they need and collect the water that they needed to, to consecrate and cleanse the, the sacrifices and to, to prepare themselves through consecration, you know, the Lord Jesus takes the water of the word and he uses it to cleanse us and sanctify us, which is why we really need to spend more and more time uh, in, in the word of God. Now, this brings us to the eighth gate, which is called the horse gate. Uh, and, and this is the gate where everybody was just horsing around. But uh, as far as I know. But with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 3, beginning at verse 27. Here we read, After them the Tekoites repaired another section next to the great projecting tower, and as far as the wall of Oval, uh, beyond the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Now, here in these verses, we, we learn about the Israelites who were helping to repair the horse gate and, and the surrounding walls. And, and clearly, there are priests who are there living uh, there by this section of the wall. Uh, but listen, the horse gate here is located on, on, on the north side of the, of the eastern wall. And, there, and there's a good reason to believe that this was the entrance that the mounted soldiers would use in order to access the king's stables where thousands of military horses were being kept. In light of this, I'd like to suggest that the horse gate reminds us about the fact that the people of God, we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of a spiritual battle. We find ourselves in the middle of a spiritual battle each and every day. And it's for this reason that the Apostle Paul encourages every Christian to endure every hardship that we experience here in this world as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. That's what we are. We've been enlisted as good soldiers of Jesus Christ so that we may please the king who enlisted us to be his soldiers. It's also in 1 Timothy chapter 6 where we find Paul challenging the church to fight the good fight of faith. If you're wondering then, you know, when you're going to get your battle horse, well, it, hopefully not, it won't be long. As a matter of fact, I'll direct your attention to the vision that the Apostle John describes in Revelation chapter 19. There, we learn about this day when the armies in heaven will return with the Lord Jesus Christ as we follow him on white horses. That's right. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to return on a horse, and, and, and church, we are going to be following him on our own war horses. It's going to be incredible. 
And uh, this brings us to the ninth gate because, uh, listen, this, this has everything to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ. With this as the focus, look with me here at Nehemiah chapter 3. I want to focus your attention at verse 29. Here we read that after them, Zadok the son of Immer made repairs in front of his own house. After him, uh, Shemaiah the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. Now, this east gate was so named because it was directly to the east of the temple area. And this was also the gate that the Israelites would commonly use to enter uh, into Jerusalem to head to the temple. So, so people, as they came from all around, as, as they made their way uh, during the festivals and the feasts, you know, they, they would commonly enter uh, the, the city of Jerusalem and head to the temple here through this east gate. The east gate, which is also known as the golden gate, or the beautiful gate. This was also the gate that the Lord Jesus used when he fulfilled the prophecies about his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. When we read about Palm Sunday and Jesus entering into Jerusalem, he went through this east gate. According to Jewish tradition, uh, this is also the gate that, that the Messiah will use at the time when he establishes his kingdom here on earth. And it's for this reason that a sultan of the Ottoman Empire, his name was Suleiman the Magnificent, uh, because he was a very humble man. <clears throat> but he decided that he was going to seal up the eastern gate in order to prevent the Messiah from entering Jerusalem. If you take a, uh, our next trip to Jerusalem, which I hope is uh, uh, going to be the free one, um, <laughs> but uh, but seriously, you know, if we're able to go back to Jerusalem, but before the rapture, uh, you'll you'll see that the East Gate is all walled up, and not only that, but they put uh, 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 you know uh, graves down below it because they they, they thought this would, this is going to stop the Messiah. Yeah, that's that's silly. What this silly sultan failed to realize is that the you know the second coming of Christ is going to is just going to be just turmoil. It's going to be it's going to be a, everything's getting wrecked. You know, in other words, uh, as a matter of fact, if if you look uh, if you look at Zechariah chapter fourteen, there the prophet Zechariah declares this. He says, "In that day, speaking of the day of the Messiah's return, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. So he's on the east side. So looking at the eastern gate." The Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Uh, I don't think that a few bricks <laughs> in a city wall is going to stop the Messiah from entering in through the eastern gate. Jesus won't have any problem gaining access to the Temple Mount. And remember, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, we're going to be following him on white war horses, which is what I like to call white horse privilege. But uh, that's, that's probably another study altogether. But this brings us to the 10th and final gate, which is called the Mikfad gate. Uh, easy to say, right? Uh, with this as the focus, let's uh, consider the last three verses of this chapter, beginning, beginning there at verse 30. Here we read, after him, Hananiah, the son of Shalemiah, and Hunan, uh, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, made repairs in front of his dwelling. After him, Malchijah, uh, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the Nethanin uh, and of the merchants in front of, of the Mifkad gate and as far as the upper room at the corner. And between the upper room at the corner as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made their repairs. Now here are the final verses of this chapter. 
Uh, we, learn, we learn about those who helped rebuild this Mifkad gate, as well as the surrounding walls. And just to be clear, uh, the, the word Mifkad, it's a Hebraic word which can also be rendered inspection. This is the inspection gate. And in order to understand why this gate is called the inspection gate, well, it'll help you to know that the word Mifkad has a military connection. And according to tradition, this was the gate where the king would come and meet his troops and inspect them before going off to war. And it's also possible this, that this is where the kings would then conduct their national census as the children of Israel would then be counted and taxed accordingly. And so another form of inspection happening here. With all this in mind, I can't help but to think of the Bema seat judgment where the king of kings will then set in judgment over those who trusted in him. Uh, The judgment seat that I'm talking about is mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There he declares, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yes, so is through fire. Now, Christian, listen, there's coming this day here when all of our works are going to be tried by fire. Everything that we ever did, it's going to be tried by fire. And while it's true that the beam of seed of Jesus Christ that Paul is referring to here, it's not going to change the status of our salvation. This is not a judgment seat to determine whether someone is a Christian or not. This is a judgment seat for Christians to determine which works were done in the spirit and which works were done in the flesh. That which was done in the flesh, it's going to be burned up, lost forever. The time we spent, the energy we spent, the money we spent, all gone forever. But the things that we did in the spirit, we're going to receive reward for. And and so, you know, the the question that we ought to ask as we make our, our daily decisions is how much of what I'm doing do I want to enjoy the rewards of forevermore? How much time do I want to spend on carnal endeavors that'll just get burned up? And how much time do I want to spend on spiritual things that the Lord is going to reward? That's a decision that we all have to make each and every day. But, you know, it's for this reason that Paul encouraged us to become those believers who are steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. And the reason why he says in 1 Corinthians 15 is because that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. The works we do for the Lord are not done in vain. How much of the stuff that we do each and every day is just completely in vain? Just a complete waste of time, not only here in this, not only, you know, uh, as it applies to the, the rewards, but also just in, in, uh, in day-to-day life. You know, there's actually people that sit around and watch a show called, like, I think it's called the Kardashians or something. Yeah, people actually watch stuff like that. It's like, Really? That you're like you've got all this time that you're just willing to waste on on this, really, and and how much time do we spend just wasted on all kinds of just ridiculous things when to serve the Lord? Well, that's not in vain, and and that's something that we all have to consider. At the same time, we would also do well to inspect ourselves before we arrive at the inspection gate. Like 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 we don't want to get to the inspection gate and then realize, oh wow, I just wasted all of my life. 
And, and while it's nice that we get to still enter into heaven by faith in Jesus Christ, you know, the, the reality is that you know, we might be missing out on a lot of everlasting rewards simply because we didn't take the time to inspect our lives while we were here. With that, I, I encourage you to remember something that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. It's verse 5 where he declares, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? Wow. In other words, listen, before you finally arrive at the Bema seat of Jesus Christ, every believer would do well to examine ourselves in order to make sure that we're actually, actually living a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And part of this examination ought to send around the question, am I even a believer? You know, it's, it's never, you know, a bad thing to, you know, if there's a question mark to actually take some time to just examine our own faith and make sure that we're in the faith because not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. I like the way that the apostle Peter put it in second Peter chapter one, uh, there he declares brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble for so an entrance will be supply, supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ. Be diligent to make your call and election sure. If you really want to make sure that you're going to receive an abundant reward as we stand before the beam of seat of Jesus Christ, we would do well here in this world to make sure that we are those diligent disciples who are making our calling and our election more sure in the way that we spend our lives serving our Savior. Now with this as the goal, we must not fail to notice that this chapter begins and ends there at the Sheep Gate. It was back in the beginning of this chapter where we started at the Sheep Gate, and it's here in verse 32 where we learn that this construction project wrapped around all the way back and circled back, uh, as Jen Saki might say, uh, there at the, the Sheep Gate. Uh, now, with this as the focus, I, I want to conclude this study by reminding you that Jesus is the Sheep Gate. Jesus is the Sheep Gate. I'll prove my point. It's in John chapter 10. There he declares, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. From this, we can see that Jesus is the sheep gate. Therefore, those who want to enter the kingdom of God, we must enter in by faith in Jesus Christ. He says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Place your faith in Jesus Christ because he is the door for the sheep. And as we enter in by faith in Jesus Christ, we can rejoice in knowing that as his sheep, he then is our good shepherd. If we are his sheep, then he is our good shepherd. And if Jesus is your good shepherd, then you can rejoice in knowing that no one is able to steal you away from our good shepherd. You know that? That no one is able to steal you away from Jesus Christ? I like the way that Jesus put it in John chapter 10 again, where he declares, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Do you realize, Christian, that no one can take you out of the hands of our Savior, Jesus Christ? 
Not one created thing can separate you from the love of the Lord. It's incredible. Those who enter the kingdom through the sheep gate can rest in the assurance that our Savior is the good shepherd who will never leave us, nor will he forsake us. With that being the case, let's rest in the redemption that we've received. And as we rest in his redemption, let's continue to follow the good shepherd. Let's pray.